Hey, this is Dean Winchester. Thanks for checking out Supernatural Speakeasy Podcast. Don't forget to get a like, subscribe, do all that other crazy crap. Hi, I'm Natasha. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Supernatural Speakeasy Podcast, where we talk about all things supernatural. We're going to play for you all a little bit of um our conversation with guy b when he was when he joined us for the benders episode was it for the benders yeah when he joined us for the benders episode uh there was just so much great stuff that he shared with us that i didn't put in our um episode when we talked about the benders so i would like to share we would like to share that with you all now um, for the rest of this episode, and next time we will begin diving into season two of Supernatural because we just can't wait any longer. Because hello, we left off on a cliffhanger, so yeah, we're going to start talking about season one. Season one, nope. <laughs> 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 I mean, we could talk about season one again, but <laughs> we're going to talk about season two, episode one next time. And until next time, until then, carry on, everyone. Three years ago, I did a movie as a camera operator called Crazy in Alabama. And our main city that we shot, it was supposed to be Alabama, was home of Louisiana. And so I spent, you know, four or five weeks there, um, you know, not 1998, but um, great people. I have, you know, great memories. I don't really keep in touch with anybody, but still, you know, they're, they're forever in your heart when you do a movie with, with people out you know, in the middle of the bayou. And I guess it was like June, July, August. I remember it was, it was definitely hot, muggy, sweaty. Um, but what's going on? <laughs> Pretty good. Okay, we're really thankful that you came on today. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it, it's fun. I mean, the, the history for me with the show. I mean, it's been about put it this way. I have a sixteen and a half year old daughter who's driving, and when I and I remember distinctly when I went up to do the episode, she was nine months old, and we were pushing her around Vancouver in a stroller. She wasn't even walking yet. So that gives oh, you. Wow. Yeah, that gives you a time frame. It was October of, of 2005. And I remember, all I knew was I got a call from my agent saying there's this new show on, this, on the um, the WB. Yeah. And it's about these, uh, like, ur- like they re-examine these urban myths like Bigfoot and, you know, uh, the, the, the prom queen who, you know, is, is hitchhiking on her way home from the prom and somebody gives her a ride. And it turns out to be she turns ghost and all this and i said oh cool and they said there's these two handsome guys playing you know the guys that investigate this i said so it's the ghostbusters and she my <laughs> age, goes yeah, in a way he goes all i know is that david nutter recommended you because david and i go way back got to 1991 when david was a very young director and i was a camera operator we we did a, a little series together um where he came, he just came and directed one episode and i remember going Saying to my uh, second assistant, I said, before work tomorrow, go by the grocery store and buy a package of uh, uh, Nutter Butter peanut butter cookies. And so he did. And when he got there, we cut out the Nutter and we put it on the slate for the director. 
And he just thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen in his life. I go, come on, nobody's ever given you a, pa- a package of Nutter Butter peanut butter cookie bars. <laughs> right. So we hit it off. And so we just kept in touch. And when I became a director in 99, he was very supportive. And, and you know, I'm in a business where even your best friend, their director, there's, it's, it's, you're in competition with each other. It's just the nature of it. And um, you don't get a lot of um, support from your, even your, like I said, your best friends that are directors. Because, you know, it's, if, if there's a slot that they think they can get, they're not going to, you know, say anything about you or recommend you. It's just the nature of it. But David was never that way. He was, you know, he was years ahead of me as far as, you know, his, his place in the business. But he was always very supportive. So when 2005 came around and he had directed the pilot when they got picked up, uh, the producers asked him, because he did one of the first ones. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but they asked him if he had any recommendations for directors. And he just gave him a handful, and I was one of them. So they threw me into that one uh, asylum. And uh, it was, the, it was the, uh, the Haunted House episode where these two kids that are supposed to go uh, into this decommissioned insane asylum. And as you guys, I'm sure, know, Riverview is a real, actual, honest-to-God decommissioned insane asylum and i've shot there on i mean i had already been there a few times on other shows um true calling and and a bunch of shows that i'd done before my my time on evan uh on supernatural so i knew i knew the place very well and they said we're going to take the you know this wing and we we scouted jerry wanick and i and you know his whole crew we scouted you know what what hallways we would you know use and 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 i mean because we had to make it look like it was you know dripping ceilings with mold and fungus and and then also you know the old trick the directors do is is, is if you're leading the boys down one one hallway and you go around a corner and you let them exit frame you just spin around and you have them enter the same hallway but you go the other way and it looks like they just went down two hallways so, you know, it's all those director tricks where, you, and, and basically all you do is you take where if there was a wheelchair and a, and a mayo stand with, you know, a skull on it, you just get rid of those and you put in a couple stands with, you know, all IV bottles and stuff. You just shake up the, the set dressing. Voila, you're in a different hallway, but you've only dressed it once. I remember I had done a couple episodes of a show called Veronica Mars. And um, when I... Love that show. <laughs> And when I had, yeah, it was, it was great. It was great. And one of the, the first episode I did was called like a virgin. And it was all about, um, Veronica. It was some kind of like purity contest or something. And she had to, um, and one of her friends was, was being doxxed. Like they were saying, you know, bad things about her. She was like a good girl, like a cheerleader. And so, uh, the, the, um, creator of the show, Rob said, Hey, you know, the, it was at the end of the day, it was between Kristen Bell. And another actress, and so well, I wanted to, and, and you know, we all at the end had to pick one, and we went with Kristen, who, you know, great choice, she's phenomenal. But the other actress we wanted to pick that, that didn't get the part is Veronica Mars, we want to cast in the, in your episode. Her name's Alona Tal. And I said, yeah, cool, you know, hey, look, Rob, it's your show, and, you know, if, if she was, you know, it was between her and Kristen, I know she's a good actor. So anyway, that's how I met Alona Tal, and Alona guest starred in that episode, Like a Bird. So when I read uh, Asylum, I said to the casting directors in L.A., hey, I got something that would be great for the girlfriend. And um, and they reached out to Alona. They all agreed with me. But I guess at the time, Alona's Israeli. So at the time, her like visa and pa- pass or paperwork and stuff for her passport 
wasn't where it needed to be for her to go to another country because Vancouver, even though it's basically Seattle North, um, is another country. And so we couldn't we couldn't cast her. And of course, years later, they cast her, uh, you know, as, as one of the Harvells, right? You know? um, so, so, um, and I think, uh, and Brooke Nevin, who ended up getting the part, was great. I haven't seen Brooke lately, but she's she's a great actress. And I keep in touch a little bit with um, with the the guy, the the boyfriend, um, Nick D'Augusto. Nick, yeah, I think Nick. Nick uh, I kept in touch with him a little bit um, via social media. Um, but it was like it was a script that was really well well written. I mean, it was a, it was the two writers that I never really met because they never came up to Vancouver, but we were on the phone a lot. They sent me up. This is again shows you how long ago this was. They sent me up a, a, a Manila envelope with a couple DVDs in it and said, "These are the movies that we watched to kind of you know hype ourselves up to write this." And it was too. Um, it was kind of right when the craze of like. The, the, the ring and the grudge and all that was going on like the the asian wow. they sent me two movies um one was called um a tale of two sisters and one was called shutter and uh, one was um from bangkok and one was from south korea and they've since remade both of them as movies um and the, but the Asian ones are so what's so great about what they do in, in, in Asia, at least that, at that time, I don't know if it's gotten more sophisticated, is all the horror is in camera. There's no big visual effects and there's no it's all like old school makeup and old school just you know, whip pans and cuts, you know, like real cinema. What, what directors, you know, the director in you like it responds to when you read things like, oh, I know a way to make this. There's a lot of what what, what makes horror work is how fast or slow you dolly in or how pan over or what you look at. And you let the camera be the eyes of the viewer. And so, you know, a lot of times the director is more, um, you get more out of the story from what you don't show the audience than from what you do. I mean, that's why Jaws works so well is, you know, the, the stupid shark was broken 90% of the time, so they couldn't do a <laughs> That's precisely what made it work. Um, if you show too much of something, like, for example, the movie Alien is a masterpiece. Just a masterpiece. Every every frame of it is so well done. And as good as Aliens is James Cameron's part two, they show too much of the alien. It's after a while, it loses its power. It's like somebody flipped the light on. It's like, well, it's not anymore. It's a great film. I mean, it's, it's great, but it's not a masterpiece like Alien is. Um it's a popcorn, you know, thrill ride, and it works on every level. Whereas, you know, Alien is a piece of um, because you know they were very smart about how they showed very little, or they judiciously showed you something. You know, and it's a it's a metaphor for a bunch of you know uh, for for people's darkest fears. That you know, it works. Ridley Scott brilliantly tapped into what makes people scared, and and. Um, so, I, you know, going into the episode, I you know, remember watching those on like a Sunday afternoon in my hotel room in Vancouver, middle of the day, blazing sun, and actually having to stop watching and, and, and go, uh, I got to get out of here. I got to go take a walk because I was I was honestly got scared. These are if you get a chance, a tale of two sisters, which I think is the South Korean one. And again, it was remade. And if you go on IMDb, it'll tell you the American, the title of the American one. 
And then Shudder, I think, uh, is is the one from Bangkok, Thailand. And I think that got remade as Shudder, the American version. And I, for some reason, I remember the people saying that the American versions aren't as scary or as, as effective. But um, so I was all hyped up and, you know, hopped up on those two movies going into it. And, um, you know, everybody was 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 on board with what, what was important to make this scary. A lack of light. You know, uh, there's no if, you, if you've ever followed me on social media, there's it's no mystery that I'm the world's biggest Serge Lindisair fan, the cinematographer who just is in addition to being one of the most incredible cameraman I've ever worked with because of the speed at which he moves and the look that he, that he gets. He's just a gentleman and one of the sweetest, kindest people to work with. And what was fun about that show, maybe not early on, but as I got into season six and seven, because, you know, I, I did that episode in season one and then I didn't have anything to do with the show for the next five seasons. I, I kind of rejoined them in season six. Um, what, what ended up happening? The episode he directed in season six was uh, Frontierland. That was my favorite episode that season. <laughs> I got lucky. That was one where um, got back in the fold with them on Family Matters, and um, and they liked what I did enough with that 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 um, it was an open episode. You know, they kind of left one open. I think every year for Kripke, and if Kripke passed or you know just wasn't in the mood, then they would make some calls. And so they called my agent and said, "Is you know guy be at all interested in doing this one?" And again, it's it's luck of the draw and the Whatever script I got, I got, and that's just the way it is. But I was lucky, and the funny thing about that is I had just watched Black Swan and the Coen Brothers' True Grit. So when I read the first page, the teaser is sort of a flash forward of um, Dean, this gunfight. And so I read the first page, I go, well, this has got a dream. He's got to wake up from this dream. And, you know, Black Swan was like sort of that psychological thriller kind of vibe where you're battling with yourself. And so I thought, well, you know, he's, he's, he's fighting himself. There's some inner struggle. Um, of course, I read the rest of the script. I'm like, no, we're actually going to go to the old old West. We're going to go 150 years in the past in a time machine. Great, cool, love it. But um, those movies were both, you know, heavily on my mind when, when I did that episode. So it was like the perfect timing, you know, the synchronicity of getting that script and the Western and, and psychological thriller and all that. Um, but uh, the cool thing about Serge is in the later seasons, the, they would come and pick me up in the morning for a day of work, uh, the shooting days, and then we'd swing around the block and pick up Serge. So that drive, which sometimes could be a half hour, 45 minutes, Serge would open up his uh, call sheet and say, uh, you know, guy, this, this scene where, you know, he, um, scene one, what did you want to do where he walks down the hallway and he sees the ghost in the mirror and, I said, well, you know, what could be fun is instead of like, you know, doing it exactly as it's written, it'd be kind of fun to kind of start in the mirror and pull back out or whatever. And you go, okay, cool, good, good, good. So in other words, we would, we would kind of pre prep just based on some crazy ideas. But by the time we work and we started, we brought, you know, the cast in to start blocking, rehearsing. Serge was already like roughing in lighting and he would already, he's already talked to, you know, Chris and Harvey, the key grip and the gaffer and saying, here's what, here's what the first shot is going to be this. So cut those lights off and turn these on. And so by the time we were sort of blocking, we're already halfway lit. So that was, it was a nice pre-prep kind of thing. And then on the way home, same 
I mean, most of the time we kind of zonked out, but a lot of times he would say, um, we'd talk about what we did that day. And I'd say, you know, it would be fun when we did that thing in the hallway. I have a scene coming up tomorrow where we do this, blah, 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 blah. And I go, it would be kind of cool to, like, you know, mirror that and make that a little bit of a motif. And so once your cameraman starts thinking like you as far as motif and things that aren't on the page, uh, color a palette, like um, let's let's make green sort of an indicator that something bad's about to happen. That's all stuff that, you know, maybe only five people get, but that's all right. That's, that's <clears> what you do and cameraman. Um, so we would we would find those moments to, to find things, a little touchstones in the hall episode to uh, to keep revisiting. Um, I remember in the one where the, the 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 Leviathans keep going through the water system. Ben Edlund wrote it. Um, it was either uh, anyway. I think uh, 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 well, when Castiel like walks into the water to release the. the oh yes, yes. We kept the water <laughs> motif going through the whole episode, like water fountains and, and uh, uh, cheerleaders having a fundraiser <laughs> car washes. It was a whole motif of water, 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 blue. Um, so that was kind of fun, like before we even started shooting, talking about that with, with Jerry and the, and the art department. Um, wardrobe, talking about, you know, the, the, the motif for the, 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 the swim team. What the mascot for the school is, of course, it was something water-related, fish-related. You know, I don't know whether it was dolphins, sharks, <clears throat> or whatever. But that's all. That's all fun stuff. It's not in the script, but I, I, I think that you know, I don't know any other way to be a director, but, but to try and find that subtext and stuff like that. Um, and in Frontierland, immediately, you know, what's nice about shooting digitally as opposed to film is you can dial in a look into your camera before you start shooting. They call it LUTS, which is L-U-T-S, and I can't remember what it stands for. But I said to Serge, you know, while we were prepping, I remember coming down to the set and saying, you we go back to 1851, it'd be kind of fun to, or 1849 or whatever it was, uh, it'd be kind of fun to do like a sepia, like a brownish tone, like a like an old photo. And so in between setups, they would pull one of the cameras over on the, pre, on the episode while I was prepping that they were shooting, and they would shoot tests, and they'd say they they start dialing in these LUTs and saying, "Here's the you know here's a good uh, sepia tone LUT that we like." So every time we shot out in Border Town, which you know we went back in time, any of those scenes that were earmarked as back in time, um, we would consider that you know click on whatever LUT. So the camera immediately just clicked into a different look and a style. So that was really a lot of fun to play with. Because then we, we weren't leaving it in the hands of um, post-production. We, we actually controlled it on the day, on the set. There was no way to undo it, really, which was great. You know, I mean, you want that control. And, you know, we, had, we cleared it with everybody. We let all the producers know, you know, all this stuff in these X amount of scenes are going to be, you know, it's not going to have the normal look. It's going to look like we went back in 150 years. And so everybody was on board. Um, and there you go. Yeah. Yeah, the Matters was great. I met Rick Worthy, who's become one of my best pals. And uh, I got to work with Corin Nemec again, who I had worked with years earlier. And Mitch Pelleggi is just one of the good guys. Everybody loves Mitch. Um, so that was a fun little uh, episode to get thrown back into after having not been there for, what, five years? It was kind of yeah. 
it was kind of interesting because I, I came back after five years and walked into the hallways of the of, you know, office and almost everything was exactly the same. There were some new posters and new things that they had added over the years. But everything was like almost like I had never left. Like it was kind of funny. Like you know, every, everybody had the same places and desks, and and um, there was a few new faces, but not a lot. Um, that was the great thing about the show. after 15 seasons. There was a lot of the same people that started it way back. You know, in episode one in 2005. That's, That's really cool. cool. Everybody enjoyed the process and how great Jared and Jensen are to work with because. If there if there's a toxic kind of feel on the set, um, there's only so much and so long you can put up with that, and you yeah. just got to time to move on. And you know we all know the TV shows that have those kind of casts, and these guys were the exact opposite. In fact, any other show that I worked on that <laughs> cast locally that hadn't been on the show were like, man, I'm dying to get on an episode of Supernatural because all I hear is how great the guys are to work with. I go, yeah, you might get you might get pranked, but you'll uh, you'll have it. <laughs> watch your back, watch your front. Um, anyway, <laughs> good time, always, never, never, not a good time. Uh, what was it like? I don't know if you met Kim Mamish. Did you meet him while? Well, I knew Kim was- way before Supernatural. <laughs> Kim was like, one of those like. Uh, Directors that would come in and do an episode of the show, and uh, you know he had the greatest energy. Um, very, I mean, he had been doing this his whole life. You know, his father was a legendary line producer, so him and his brother Kelly, who I became friends with on another show, were sort of legendary. You know, kids in the business. Kim was an AD, and then he started directing on like Charlie's Angels or something. And he was one of those guys that he was a ringer. You bring him in and you go, all right, we're right here, guys. We're right here. Two cameras right here. <laughs> this, is, this is gonna push it out of his line and great, cut, print, moving on. He was like a drill sergeant. <laughs> Everybody just loved him. I mean, if you talk to anybody, especially on Supernatural, those first five seasons, um just universal love. So I knew Kim before that because and you know, having done steady cam and stuff, he was a big fan of moving cameras, and so him and I hit it off. So uh, when I came up to do um, that first episode, uh, Asylum, it was like episode six, seven, eight. I think the show had just been picked up. Kim had just moved there. He he came and did um, Dead in the Water um, because you know he, he was still in that world of uh, you know David Nutter knew him very well, and he had done all those X Files. He directed like fifty something episodes of X Files, so he was like sort of a legend in the super, like anything that was science fiction, supernatural related themed the genre shows but he kind of half retired to missouri I and mean, he was like living on a lake somewhere so he came and did dead in the water he got back they loved what he did you know kripke and i think he went with bob singer and they said hey can we is there any way in a million years can we talk to you into coming back and being the producer director and being here full time you know kim had done all those years on on uh, x-files so he he knew the lay of the land i mean he he, he was like you know super uh, Vancouver was the second home for him, so he had all his, you know, it was like a kind of a no-brainer. So he's like, hey, I'm sort of semi-retired, but I, I uh, a big part of and I remember him telling me it was a uh, big part of him doing it was he really felt a uh, special kinship and, and love for the boys. He said, these guys, Jensen and Jared are just two of the sweetest guys, and they're incredibly talented. And so uh, when I got there, 
to do asylum. He had just moved back, and um, I think he was getting ready or just did the episode Bugs. Because I remember yeah. telling, telling me how, how lucky I was to have gotten, I think that was, yeah, how lucky I was to have gotten um, the Haunted Insane Asylum episode because he just did one where the guest star bad guys were bugs and real bugs. So he was jealous. He was like, oh, I wish I would have got that script. Um, and uh, so I knew Kim already um, pretty well before I got there. He was glad. He was happy to see me and vice versa. And, um, you know, again, I he knew I was an experienced enough director where he didn't have to hold my hand. So a lot of, a lot of times a producer director sits in on all the meetings and goes to all the scouting with the, with the incoming director to kind of keep them in the mode and be the devil's advocate about, how, you know, how would you shoot this? How, what do you think about this? And, so he didn't have to do too much of that with me, which is which is cool. Um, again, I think he was either starting or just finished Bugs, so he probably was otherwise engaged anyway. But um, but Natasha, what was the question again about Kim? I was just um, just saying if you had known how long have you known him, or yeah, if you had yeah. met him before, so yeah, probably okay. If, if if Supernatural was two thousand five, I met Kim probably in like. 92 so i knew him already like 13 years uh, in fact one of the first the first thing i ever did in vancouver was in 92 was this uh panel show called the hat squad and i moved up there for like five months and lived in vancouver because i just didn't have that many steady camp guys so um they they uh they were able to you know through the talk to the union and just you know um cut uh, not customs but uh uh, immigration, they were able to give me a special visa to come up because I had a like, special skill. So I moved up to Vancouver for probably from like July to um, probably almost Christmas in 92. Kim was one of those directors that came up and did a few, I think, of the hat spot because he was a cannel guy. He did a lot of Stephen J. Cannell shows. Um, uh, Jump Street, I think he directed the pilot of Jump Street. Um, wise guy, uh, Stingray, I mean, he did all those, uh, the commish. Um, yeah, he was, he was, he was, and is a legend, and, yeah. uh, and, uh, it was a great, it was a loss, but he's one of those guys that lived, he, he lived, every day of his life was, he didn't, he didn't, uh, waste a moment, he lived, he lived a really great life, and, uh, he burned the candle at both ends, as they say, <laughs> but yeah, I love him to death, he was, he was a real director in that fiercely, um, focused and creative and, and everything was about the story everything was about pushing the narrative everything was cinematic we're going to do this we're going to fucking shoot this and this is going to be great and as brusque and as, as, as uh, kind of short he, as he was with some of his direction and the way he his style of being a director he was fiercely uh, revered, and, and people like just loved him to death and respected. And his episodes were great. I mean, he did all those X Files, some of the best episodes of X Files. You'll see Kim directed, um, and his cast loved him. His crews just loved. I mean, that camera crew on Supernatural just thought the world of him um, because it was always it was never a boring shot. It was always something something interesting going on. He always pushed it. And so, yeah, I mean, for me, that the pressure was on to come up and do 
Um, you know, because I kept hearing about this episode, Dead in the Water, Dead in the Water. You got to see it. It's so great. It's so scary. Um, so the pressure was on. I was like, well, fuck. I, I can't not be in, uh, do a good episode. And, then, you know, again, I, I just I just stuck with my gut and did what I thought was going to be good. And also the other cool thing is when I came up in, in October, they had just, like, in one of my first meetings, they got the announcement that they got picked up for the back nine, which was not only are they going to do the first 13 that they are promised, or first 12, because the pilot is its own thing. But they knew they were going to work until April. And I remember Kim coming up to me and saying, guy, guy, we'll get you back up here and do a couple of these in the back nine. But, you know, Kim Kim had his opinion, and, you know, but I wasn't super close with Bob Singer or Phil Screesha from before that. So I didn't I didn't ever come back again till season six, till Family Matters. But, it, you know, that's the nature of the business. It, it, it's... Uh, they're scheduling things, and I think they called my my people a few times and said they want to offer guy an episode. Well, he's not available, so they tried again, not available. Well, they just quit calling, and it's nothing personal. Um, and I kept in touch with Jesse and Jared because I would come up and do other shows in Vancouver, and uh, you know that 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 camera crew and you know Dave the Dolly Grip, Dave Repel. Um, I kept in touch with them, you know, through through social media and um, text messaging. I'd say, hey guys, I'm coming up for three weeks. Let's go, let's do a dinner. So I met up with Jensen and Jared and drinks and dinners and, you know, and also like our friend Christian, who was um sound guy. Um, we'd always have something to do. So so the, I, I kept in touch with those guys and, they, and they, they, they kept saying, we're not quite sure why you haven't been asked back. We always ask for you. To, you know, why can't they get guy back? And But it happened. You know, I mean, it happened again in season six. And then I did got into whatever season 10, season 11. And um I kind of fell out. You, you, you kind of fall off the, 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 the hamster wheel and get going on the other stuff. I mean, I got into that Arrow universe for a while there. And um, so I was, again, up in Vancouver, but just kind of not in the supernatural camp again. Um, just the way it happens. But uh, anyway. I'm not too oh, man. <laughs> Long-winded answer to your short question. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Oh man, that, that's really great. Uh, your show is the all-time favorite show. And, <laughs> and you guys have been to the conventions, right? Of course, right? No, I've never been to a convention. Yeah, they're they're interesting. I mean, I went to. This is a funny story. I finished Frontierland. That would have been season six, and um, I got real close with Cliff, uh, who you know provides security for the guys, and just became like family um cliff kosterman cliff was a big muscle car guy and so we compared you know car pictures all the time and talked a lot so i finished frontierland cliff calls me or texts me or whatever and goes hey we're all we're all go, coming down to la for uh, this convention i was like oh cool well let's i'll meet you guys for lunch or something where are you guys going to be and they go well it's this hotel right i mean literally 30 seconds from lax it's like right on the way out of lax and he goes, you know, we have the convention, and, you know, we'll do dinner or something. So they go, have you ever been to one of the conventions? I go, no. And they go, come on down, you know, come to whatever, and come to the back door and ask for Cliff. So I park, and, and I think I'm just picturing, like, you know, 20 card tables, and like a couple people standing around and an autograph table. I don't think it's going to be that big a deal. So I come in, I knock on the back door, I go, hey, I'm Guy. Oh, yeah, we're, we're expecting you. So I go, and I find the guys back in the green room, and they're like, all right, it's time. Let's go. So I'm like, well, time for what? And they go, well, it's like the big Sunday um, thing where, you know, the guys come out for the first time and 
after you know the the I guess Thursday, Friday, Saturday was all the guest actors and stuff. So I go, all right. So I, I start following. We go down a couple hallways through the kitchen, and and I hear like this roar, this low level roar. And Cliff goes, go go look to, through that curtain. So I put my head through the curtain, and there's like <laughs> a room. Well, you guys know a room full of people. It's like with a big ballroom in like whatever the LAX Hyatt. Like, is that all for they go, yeah? And so in my head, I was like, it's not what I expected at all. So the guys come up, big roar, you know, they start asking answering questions. And I go off to the side, and of course, Jensen or Jared, I can't remember, said, um, you guys know we just did a uh, western episode where we go back into into uh, 1850s Wyoming, and they point to me, and guy just directed it, and so it was it was a trip. And so then afterwards, I went behind just the curtain area, and uh, I talked to uh, the, the creation guys, and they were like, well, have you come and do one of these? And so I go, oh, I don't know how much I can add, but they say, yeah, that'd be fun. So they called me. I did, like, Nashville, Burbank. That was great because I didn't have to get on a plane. I just drove there. And then um, did a few of them. I did Chicago. And then the other funny, interesting one was um, I get a get a – yeah, it must have been a phone call from uh, Birmingham, England. And the guys who do the conventions in, in England. And um, I guess Jared had something, there was some kind of um, family emergency and he had to back out of this the big, uh, I can't remember what it was, but I, I um, they said, is there any way you can get on a plane tomorrow? We'll do this with this. We'll fly you here. We'll pick you up in London. And I said, well, I, and they go, well, you know, you come highly recommended for the fandom. And, and also, you know, Mark Shepard's here and Mark Pellegrino and Jim Beaver and Misha Collins. Yeah. And they all and, uh, we told them we were thinking about reaching out to you. They all overwhelmingly supported that. I said, all right, let me see if I can do it. So asked my wife, asked her. And so it all worked out great where I flew into London, um, hung out with, I think, DJ Qualls and, and Jim, B, Jim Michaels. Um Matt Cohen, and we all took a van from London. We, you know, we kind of got over jet lag for a day or two in London. Drove out to Birmingham, stayed at this incredible hotel with a boat. I mean, it was a real honest to God, former castle. And then went to the um, the big, their big Birmingham you know, like, uh, convention center. And that was interesting because there was a green room. Where everybody kind of hung out. I mean, you know, James Patrick Stewart, uh, Kim Rhodes, but I mean, it was like it was like all my favorite people. And uh, so we get there in the morning, and um, and they're like, "Guy, if you ever, if you need to go over here, there's a restroom there. But if you need to go out at all, just just contact one of us, and we'll we'll send one of the guys with you." And I go, "What do you mean, one of the guys?" Like these, you know, very nicely suited gentlemen. And I said, "Why?" And they go, "Because you know, you'll get mobbed out there if you go." I go, "They're not." They're not going to mob you. So I grab a cup of tea. You know, it's like 10 in the morning. I grab a cup of tea. I start walking around. Every once in a while, someone would go, guy? I go, hey, what's going on? And I'm just asking everybody, like, you know, where are you from? Some people were, came from Spain. Some people came from Poland. It was crazy. Because this is a big English convention, you know. And they, I guess they hadn't been there in a while. Um and so I was just, and there were people waiting in lines already queuing up for pictures and autographs and stuff. And so I would just sit, you know, I kind of became like, a, you know, like the, the entertainment on the love boat. It was kind of fun to just walk around. 
then of course like noon one o'clock rolls around and people start buying me pints or uh, ciders big there so i'm drinking a lot of apple uh, you know spiked cider and so i just had the time of my life because nobody bothered me and they're like i'd go back to the green room and hang out for a bit and i'd go i'm gonna go <laughs> i'm sick of playing video games with mark shepherd's kids i'm gonna go play i'm gonna go out <laughs> And so you know, it was, it was it was it was a lot of fun. The community and the and the fandom. Well, you guys know you're part of it. Um, very unique and interesting and fun. And and then they threw me in a bunch of different panels. I mean, I had my own one, one to do, but I you know, they threw Jim and Mike, Jim Michaels and I together on one. Um, it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. And then you know, go back to London and hung out for a day, and uh, got on a plane and slept all the way home. It was great. But they're fun. I know they're I know they're pricey, and I, I, there's not a whole bunch I can do about that. I think because of the cost of how much it takes to rent those giant convention ballrooms and stuff. Um, but uh, I think now that the show is, I mean, this is I may, I may be wrong, but now that the show is not on the air actively anymore, they're not going to do them as frequently, obviously. But I think they're going to be they're still going to do them, and I think they're going to be more economical for everybody because it just the excitement just nature of the beast the excitement isn't there for it as much as it was when it was an active you know show on the air so hopefully you guys can go and you're in the midwest right you're are you in the chicago area where are you guys uh we're um, from oklahoma so oh, oklahoma there you go also that's uh sd hinton is in tulsa super fan that was one of the fun things about the show you know like a uh a byproduct of the show is that um, I got to meet, meet, hang out with Susie, and you know she was like I think the only civilian that was ever allowed to kind of come and hang out on the set. It was a close set for spoilers for whatever, and uh, she would plan her um, spring and fall like getaway trips. And her husband would send her to Vancouver to just hang out for a week. And she pla- She started planning it, like especially like season eight, nine, ten, somewhere on there. She she would check in with me and say, "Have you bo- are you booked for any episodes?" And I give her the dates, and she would co- make it coincide with her little trip to Vancouver. And so, uh, you know, being a, being an outsider's fan from the time I was thirteen years old, it was cool to become good friends with her. Is there any current projects you're working on, or anything you want to plug, or where can people find you on social media? Um, I'm a big Twitter fan, and that's uh, Guy Norman B at Twitter, or on Twitter. And then Instagram has has been kind of fun. I kind of joined uh, the, at the urging of my daughters years ago, and that's I, th- I think I'm B Vision, B V I S I O N at Instagram or whatever. Um, but between those two, that's that uh, you can find me. I mean, no, it's it's interesting. I've always been a writer, but I never really took the time to push the agenda because I was busy as a director and I was just kind of self-conscious. Being a writer is like, you know, it's like taking off all your clothes and walking through the mall. It's it's uh, you're opening yourself up when you when you say to somebody, can you read this and give me your honest feedback? Because, you know, writing is an art and especially writing for the screen. It's like learning another language because there's there's a format. And I know this because I know a lot of execs that if they read a if they start reading a script and they see something that's not in the format, or you spell, I slammed on the brakes of my car, B R E A K S, which spell check won't catch. 
Don't throw it in the trash because it just it, anything any any excuse they can get out of reading a script, they will, and they'll they just say that you know it's just, you, you can't proofread your own stuff or you know you the format's not exactly how they can you know they just think it's amateur night. So it's a very specific language to learn, but you know I read thousands of script or read thousands of scripts and I read them all the time when people send me stuff to you know. Potentially, you know, indie films or whatever. Um, so, you know, I had I had some ideas I wanted to dust off, and some I, you know, some original ideas. And um, you know, I, I'm I've slowed down as a director in the last few years. I mean, diversity. I mean, you know, being a middle-aged white male, they're not necessarily knocking my door down anymore. And no amount of experience can fight that. Which is, you know, I I understand. I'm the father of two daughters. I understand, but at the same time, I like to work. I would do it for free if I could pay my bills, which doesn't make any sense. But um, so I took the time to start dusting off some of my old scripts and writing my ideas as spec, you know, which is just on spe speculation. Mainly because if you own material and you, they call it IP, intellectual property, if you have control of your intellectual property, um, the that's to create content is is the is the, the pinnacle of where you, where you want to be with what I do, because you know for years, for twenty something years, I've been a director, and twelve years before that, I was a camera operator where I was beholden to wait for this thing to ring, and if it doesn't ring, I don't do anything. And, you know, I, of course, I, I check in with people, and I'm like, hey, I understand you are the showrunner of this. Don't forget me when it comes time to pick directors, but um, but there's only so far that goes. So I've been writing a lot. And then, of course, March of 2020, when we all had nothing better to do and we didn't know how long that was going to be, I started writing a lot. Um, so I've, I've, I'm creating content. I wrote in, in yeah, almost three years ago, I wrote and directed, raised some money and wrote and directed a spec pilot called El Asesino, which is sort of Coen Brothers' dark comedy. And I've been shopping that around. And, you know, I got a lot of bites, but nobody's, like, jumping clamped onto the lure quite yet but um it's getting out there i just partnered with a, a video game company that wants to develop it as a video game um because and it's funny he knew this the, my, my partner in this knew this years before they announced it which was just recently but netflix is starting to offer um as part of the subscription because they've kind of plateaued um they've all they've started offering um free video games that are companion pieces with with uh, IPs that they own already, Stranger Things being a perfect example of that, where it's a TV series, but it's also you can play the video game companion piece. So um, he seems to think El Asesino is a perfect one to, to pitch to them, and he designs video games and has a video game company. So, um, so, so that's exciting. We're starting to we're finishing the polish on our uh, other pitch deck. So that's going on. I just finished another one that. Um, I'm feeling pretty good about. Got it out to a couple actor friends. Got some feedback. Um, uh, so we'll see. I mean, I'm I'm excited about that. I mean, I get a little bored. I mean, I, I I do like having a call sheet telling me what time to wake up and where to meet the van to take me to work and and saying action cut. Um, but it's a muscle that I don't I don't necessarily need to exercise. I mean, it's like riding a bike. Um, so not, nothing really to plug other than, uh, you know, just follow me on, on Instagram or, or Twitter. Twitter's very, I get a little more political than I do anywhere else. 
And Instagram is more just goofy pictures of me and my dog and my daughters. And, um, but anyway, there you go. <laughs> All right, Natasha, if there are no more questions. No. Then I think we're going to call it a day. And right. until next time, carry on, everyone. Carry on. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody, for watching. This is Dean Winchester. Uh, don't forget to check out uh, Supernatural Speakeasy on Facebook, also Instagram at SPN, and then one of those little little under dash things and then speakeasy uh here's my buddy cast to read out the twitter uh dean i i don't really know what i'm doing here but uh follow these people on what is it uh twitter what's a twitter twitter at spn speakeasy